welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, friends, welcome to you again. Uh, if you have a Bible, you're going to need it. Uh, we, we do that every now and again here at Awaken, where we'll open the Bible and study a passage from it. Mostly every week. Uh, so if you brought anything other than that, cool also. But you're going to need a Bible. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, so uh, I will let you find that. I remember growing up and going to church. I was a, a church kid, and so I learned about the Bible. I went to VBS at Pam Gall's house down the street. She actually had flannel graph, like the real flannel graph. And that was really cool. Uh, and I remember thinking as a, young, as a young child about the Bible and thinking that like, it's pretty straightforward, you know? Like, if it's in there, it's got to be true, and so I believe it, right? And, you know, like, this is your guidebook, youth group. Uh, anything, any question you have, it's, you can find the answer to it, and so you just got to look for it, uh, which is just terrible advice to give to kids, um, I've now realized. But I told kids that. I remember thinking that. In college, this, this, this kind of sim- simple view of the, of the Bible, that it's very straightforward, uh, was, was actually only deepened in me. There was not a lot of ambiguity. What's, what's in there is pretty clear. And what I have come to find out is that you have to skip a lot of the Bible to hold that view. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, to think that it's, it's quite straightforward and it's, it's not ambiguous at all. Like, there's a lot in the Bible. If you actually read it from cover to cover that is in there, that is a bit alarming and bizarre. Um, now, I didn't say this first hour, but I will say it this hour, because we're going to podcast this one, I think. Um, for those of you, uh, like, this, this uh, stage of faith, where the text and the Bible, it, it, like, it's kind of clear and straightforward, and there's lots of black and white and right and wrong and very clear distinctions, it's actually normal and necessary in a, sta- in a, in a, a journey of faith. And so, um, I hope no one ever feels like that I'm downplaying or poo-pooing, like, that position or, or being in that place. Like, lots of our kids are in that place, and it's good, and people who are young in their faith are in that place, and it's, ne- it's needed and necessary, right? Um, hopefully, as we grow in faith, we become a bit more aware of what's actually in here, and we start to, like, wrestle with a text like we're going to read this morning. Um, but this passage we're going to look at today is uh, maybe one of the most enigmatic and bizarre passages in Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And uh, it's, it, what's, what's fascinating to me is many people don't even know it's there. Um, and I, I probably had read this before, but uh, when we were talking about Lost in Translation and what we would study, Jenna's like, hey, what if we did the one about um, the flint knives and circumcision in the Exodus? And I'm like, What? got to be kidding me. She's like, no, dude, it's in there. And so sure enough, it's there. It's right between the burning bush and Moses going to get the people out of Egypt. But so many of us don't even know it's there because we've skipped over it because it's really actually bizarre and alarming. Uh, but we're going to get to it. We're going to read it today. And just so you know, as we do, there's no consensus on this passage. Like among Christians who have written about it, smart, educated, intellectual folks, all kinds of ideas about what this means. Jewish theologians and scholars, um, equally despairing, uh, uh, there's a disparity that is equal, uh, and, and even, like, there are Muslim scholars who find this passage really interesting, who have, who have weighed in on it, and there's no consensus, right? So I say that because um, 
I'm going to invite us this morning to lay down, just for a moment, our propensity to want to get it right. You know what I mean? Like with the Bible, a lot of times, what we're after as Western evangelical Christians is like, what does it mean? What is the correct interpretation of this passage? And that's a, that's a, um, a good desire to have. I don't want to downplay that. But it's not always the most important one, and it's actually not always helpful. So today, as we go through this passage, which has all kinds of people saying all kinds of things about it, we're going to just set down for a couple of minutes our desire to, like, what does it mean? And are you going to get it right, Micah? That's not what we're doing today. I'm actually going to offer a lot of what-ifs, um, which is totally within the tradition. There's a whole volume of books of rabbinic study called Midrash, where the rabbis kind of fill in the blanks of which there are many in this passage. And so there's lots of Midrash on this. So that's kind of what I'm going to try to do this morning. And it may be a little, uh, it may feel different to you. So I just want to warn you. We're going to try to set down the whole, like, get it right desire. And we're going to just wrestle with this. We're going to sit in it for a bit. Uh, we're going to enter the tradition and the stream that we come from, which is wrestling with the text. If you didn't know, Israel, in Hebrew, literally means one who wrestles with God and man and is able. So the very name of the people of God from the beginning had this idea of wrestling with the text and wrestling with faith. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And I'm going to offer a couple of thoughts on what I think uh, is one lens that we could understand this story through. And you may think, well, that's interesting, Micah. Or you may think, wow, um, the Spirit of God spoke today, and thank you. I'm hoping that it's the latter, but if it's not, that's okay too. So welcome to Lost in Translation, right? This is our summer series where we look at passages in the Bible. Because if you read it, actually read it, you find that there are bizarre and very alarming portions of it. So we're going to take one of those this morning and try to understand it. And we do this for a couple of reasons. One, in particular, the denomination and the tradition that we come from in this church really values the Bible. Uh, it has been, and we want it to remain in the center of our life as a community because it attests to, it bears witness to, Jesus the Christ, which is the very center. And so we want it to be that, and we want it to remain that. The Covenanters said, uh, they said it this way, that Scripture, both old and new, are the, it's the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. So that's why we're doing this, right? So if you can, I want to invite you to stand. We'll be in Exodus chapter 4. We're going to read a bit before and a bit after the passage we're going to focus on to give you just a little bit of context and sort of the story, right? Starting in verse 18, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons, and he put them on a donkey, and he started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform, excuse me, before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I actually did a Lost in Translation on that, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So if you're interested about that, go back in the podcast archives. Then say, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship you. But you refuse to let him go, and so I will kill your firstborn. This is our passage. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. 
But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. And at that time she said, a bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Pray with me. God, this morning as we gather as your people, we do so with uh, the expressed intent to want to hear from you and to sense you and experience you in real ways. And so I pray that these songs and these words and the silence and the prayers and our study of the text, God, would be uh, a table set to experience uh, you. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We trust that you're with us and near us. And God, we, uh, we look forward to what you might have for us today. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Just to be clear about the passage we're going to study. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin. If you don't know what that means, don't Google it. And touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. Okay, friends. (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is water. (laughs) Oh. That is in there. Here's what I want to do. I want to organize our time in two two kind of distinct ways. Two uh, areas. The first is going to be just, like, because... The reason why this is such a difficult passage, um, and so many people have had such a hard time with it, is because of a lot of the grammar and the way that, the way that it's constructed in the original language. So I want to just highlight some of the things that are happening which make it such a difficult passage. We're not going to solve the puzzle here today. There is no silver bullet. I just want to highlight them so you can kind of peel back some of the layers behind the text and see why this is so tricky, right? I want to spend the majority of our time in my kind of take on, like, what does this really mean and why is it in there? So it's a little bit of a midrash in some ways. I'm going to say a lot of what-ifs. And we're gonna, there's going to be a lot of questions that you probably have that will go unanswered, okay? That's all fine, and I'm okay with that, right? I'm not nervous. I'm not anxious. So hopefully you aren't either, all right? But I want to try to end with maybe a way to read this passage and understand why is it where it is, right? Uh, which I think is, is, if there is any key... Or if there's any way to really enter this, it's, it's that way. Uh, so, first and foremost, some of the interpretive challenges. Three verses that are really, really, really hard to translate and to get the right words and the right meanings uh, for those words. Uh, the first is, who is him? Uh, it says in verse 24 that the Lord met him and tried to kill him, right? Uh, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses Actually, in your NIV, that's, that's an ad. Moses is an ad by the translators. That's not in the text. Him is, there's no reference. We don't know who the him is. So usually when you say him, there's like a, a reference to a person. And there's probably some grammatical way of saying this that I wasn't paying attention to in, in grammar class. And you may know what it is. If you do, like, put it on the Facebook page or tweet me or something so that if I ever preach this sermon again, which I probably never will, I'll know what it is. But him is not designated. So on the way, the Lord met with him and wanted to kill him, but we don't know who him is. It might be Moses. It might be one of his sons who he brings along, of which there are two, Gershom and Eleazar. But we don't know who him is. So right off the bat, We don't even know who God's trying to kill, okay? 
Um, there's all kinds of questions about why is God trying to kill somebody, but even beyond that, we don't know who it is. Um, which son is circumcised? It says in the next verse, verse 25, Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin. Which one? We don't know. It could be Gershom, it could be Eleazar. Um, best guess, based on context, the passage we read just before this talked about the firstborn son of Pharaoh and how the Passover and the killing of the firstborn. Israel is often caused, called the firstborn of God's children. So a lot of people would say, like, educated guess based on context, it's Gershom, not Eleazar. It's the firstborn son of Moses. But that's a guess, all right? Uh, whose feet, right? It says she cuts off the uh, foreskin and touches Moses' feet. It can also be translated leg. Uh, or, and, and Moses, again, that's an ad. So we don't know whose feet are being offered. <laughs> who's, the foreskin, we don't know whose feet it's, or legs it's touching. We're not really sure. It could be Moses, but it also could be the child that has been circumcised, you know, if you could just play this out and how that might work. Now this is where it gets really interesting, if it wasn't interesting enough. Um, are they really feet or legs? Many, many translators would argue that the word used is actually a euphemism for male genitalia. <laughs> so here's how it goes. If it is a euphemism for male genitalia, it's probably not the son or the, the, the one who's been circumcised who then gets touched with the genitals that were just cut off. Likely, if it is a euphemism, here's how it goes. Zipporah, God has a death grip on maybe Moses. Zipporah takes a flint knife, cuts off the foreskin of her son, and then touches Moses' genitals with it. What in the world? This is in the Bible, friends. Um, and then the whole bridegroom of blood, to me, uh, this is like a wicked complicated Hebrew phrase, and what it actually means... Nobody really knows. So those, that's just the grammar in like three verses, right? We're not even to story yet. We're not even to narrative. And like, what in the world is this doing in here? And why is it here, right? Like, why is it even here? It seems like a really coherent narrative up until this point. You've got the Egyptians and the Israelites, and they cry out, and... God comes to Moses at the burning bush and says, go get my people. And Moses is like, I don't know, maybe not, but okay, fine. And then he goes, and then there's this. It's like, uh, it's like whiplash. You know, you're reading the narrative, and it's going along, and then it's like, what the? And then it goes back to the narrative. You know, he meets up with Aaron, and they go to Pharaoh, and they get the people out, and the plagues come, and then da-da-da-da, right? It's like, da-da-da-da-da, what the? da 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 Why is it even in there? Uh, what does it mean if you can figure out why it's in there? And then, why is God, if God, in fact, if the hymn is Moses, right? God came and met him and wanted to kill him. If the hymn is Moses, why is God wanting to kill Moses after just securing Moses as the liberator prophet to go get the people? I mean, that seems a little weird, right? God's like, hey, Moses, I need you to go get my people. And Moses says, I don't know about this. I can't talk very well. Da-da-da. God says, I'll be with you. I will be your mouth. I'll speak for you. I'll send your brother. Everything's going to be fine. Moses is like, okay, fine. Gets his donkey and his wife and his kids. He's on the way, and God's like, nah, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> like, what in the world? It seems so arbitrary. You know what I'm saying? So why is it in there? Three verses packed with a lot of ambiguity and 
unknown, bizarre language and happenings. You can't have a simple view of the Bible and read this. Like, you have to skip this if you're going to keep that. It's all very clear and unambiguous. So, I want to spend the, the rest of my time zooming out. Uh, I think, really, for me, as I try to make sense of this passage, the only way that it starts to kind of fall into place is by zooming out and really getting a lay of the land in terms of the story and where this is in the story. And I think that's, that's my best offering as to making any sense of it, right? Sometimes when you read the Bible, zooming in is the right move. Like, that one word makes all the difference in the world. And in this passage, as you zoom in, it just gets fuzzier and more unclear. So I want to zoom out, and I want to try to position this passage or this little excursus amidst a larger story, which I think then draws a couple of pieces together. All right? So here we go. Uh, we have to remember the story. Who is Moses? Moses is a Hebrew. He was born to a Hebrew mother and a Hebrew father. That means he's a Hebrew. If you remember the story, the Pharaoh, the largest, uh, the empire in the land and the, and the most powerful person in the land, makes a decree to kill all of the, uh, the children, the Hebrew children. I think it's under the age of two. That might not be correct because I know that's Herod, but I think it's in this story as well. Either way, he makes a decree, kill all the Hebrew children. There's too many of them. We got to get rid of some of them. So kill the male babies. Moses' mother puts Moses in an ark, ironically. It's Teva. The only time it shows up is Noah. That's an interesting one, another day. Puts him in an ark, floats him down the Nile. He's found by the Pharaoh's daughter, if you remember. The Pharaoh's daughter takes him in, brings him back to the house, and they get a Hebrew uh, like wet nurse so someone can nurse the child. Fascinating. I think it's his mother, if I remember the story correctly. Uh, either way, Moses is raised as the prince of Egypt in the most powerful home in all of the land in, as the Pharaoh's son. Later in life, he's out seeing the happenings in Egypt, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, one of the questions I have in this story is, when does Moses know he's not an Egyptian, but he's a Hebrew? That's one of the midrashes. That's one of the questions that doesn't really get answered. At some point, we know he, he eventually comes to the point when he says, I need to, he says to his father-in-law, the Lord's told me to go get my people. Clearly at 80, after the burning bush, he's identified as a Hebrew. But does he know before? Is it this moment? When he sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew and something inside of him is like, these are my people. That can't, and he, he ends up killing the Egyptian and he buries him in the sand. Somebody sees that happening and calls him out one day and says, hey, aren't you the guy who killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand? And he freaks out and he flees. So he leaves Egypt at 40 years old. What he knew his whole entire life, his Egyptian upbringing, all the power and influence and position that he had available to him as the Pharaoh's son, he leaves. He walks away from it. And he finds himself in Midian. Midian is a small little place on the backside of nowhere in the ancient Near East. It's a polytheistic culture. He's wandering around. He finds himself at a well. There's a number of women there, one of whom is the original uh, inspiration for the Zippo lighter. Her name is Zipporah. <laughs> she offers to feed and water his camels and invites him back home for dinner. And Moses is like, I should marry this girl. She's got a great name. She gave me some water, fed me. Slam dunk, let's do this. So they get married. He spends 40 years as a, as, a, as a shepherd in the house of Jethro, who's the father of Zipporah. Jethro is the priest of Midian, friends, which means 
that Jethro, the home, the family that Moses is now a part of, is at the center of religious life for the Midianites. So Moses now knows he's left Egypt. That, whatever that was, that period of his life, that's part of his story. He leaves and he enters a new one where he is the husband of Zipporah and the son-in-law of the priest of Midian, a polytheistic pagan culture. I say all of that because I want you to try to get in the story, right? We read it and it's like two-dimensional. It's black and white pages, uh, words on a page. But like there's a ton of unanswered questions in this. Does he know he's an Egyptian? Or he's not an Egyptian but a Hebrew at this point. Does Zipporah know? Does Jethro know? We don't know. At least at 80 when he comes home from the burning bush, right? Comes back from a day in the life as a shepherd and he tells his wife, listen, who may or may not know, I'm a Hebrew and the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, has called my name and invited me to go back to Egypt and get the people out. So maybe she knows, maybe she doesn't. Maybe Jethro knows, maybe he doesn't. Either way, Moses has this knockdown drag out with God. I don't know if I should go. I don't, I don't think I should go. I don't think I can go. Finally, he relents and God invites him to leave what he's been doing for the last 40 years. Right? Go to Egypt and get my people, your people, out so that they can worship me in the land I will give to them. That's the story. And we have right in the middle of that story this excursus about circumcision and flint knives. And then he meets Aaron, his brother, and uh, uh, they're thick as thieves going forward in this whole caper called the Exodus story. All right, everybody tracking so far? We got the lay of the land. Now, I think that this passage only makes sense if it's a hinge moment in the story. Moses left Egypt at 40. He's now being invited to leave at 40 again. If you know anything about Hebrew and you've been around awake and long enough, you know that 40 is a big number. 40 is not just 40, but it's actually significant. It's, uh, it's something is being born and something is dying. Something is being invited to come to life and something is being invited to die. It's the gestational period for human life. It's how many days Noah was in the ark. It's how many days Jesus was in the wilderness. It shows up all over the place. And often at pivotal moments in people's lives. So how do you make sense of this bizarre story about circumcision and flint knives in the middle of the Exodus? I think if it's a hinge, it starts to make sense. What's happening in this moment? What if the him in the story is Moses? At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and was about to kill him. What if the, the him is Moses? And the death grip that the divine has on Moses is a choice. Moses, something will die in this moment if you do not cross over and own what I'm inviting you into. Either Moses, the Midianite shepherd, will die if you go forward fully committed to this thing I've called you to, which we know that there's not full commitment to, all the hemming and hawing, or the prophet of God and liberator of the Hebrew people will die if you don't fully cross over, if you don't fully commit yourself to this. And what does Moses bring for the journey? Two things. That's four. Two things. <laughs> Two things. On the one hand, the text tells us that he brings his wife, a Midianite, and his uncircumcised sons, symbols of the past and his life as a shepherd. And on the, on, on the other hand, he has the rod of God, the symbol for the Exodus story and Moses' power. It's the, it's the agent of the story as it unfolds. 
but you can only take one going forward. Have you ever been at a moment in your life called a threshold? I remember actually the night that Laura and I got married, and you know, like the, the sort of romantic, like carrying your, your spouse across the threshold. I think I actually hit Laura's head on the door, like going into, and that point, at that point I realized Hollywood had been lying to me for a very long time, right? Love and intimacy, it's never that smooth. Never at all, right? Okay, kids, ask your parents about this later. Uh, at any rate, have you ever been in a moment in your life like a threshold moment? When if you cross over, everything changes. Where you are not, Donald Miller calls this in, in a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, he calls it the inciting incident. The moment at which the, pro, the, the doorway through which the protagonist can never return. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life? When you knew, you knew that you knew. There were, maybe there wasn't like logical, there wasn't data, but you knew, like deep down inside, I, many would call this a spiritual knowing, that you knew that you knew that God was inviting you into something. There was a, a, a pressing, an inviting, a, a wooing, a, 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 sometimes a sinking feeling in your gut that you know that you have to make this move. I would suggest these are divine invitations. Moments in our lives when God is calling, inviting, uh, wooing, asking us to step out in faith and move, to go. A threshold moment. Have you ever had one of those in your life? And tell me, if you will, this is a rhetorical question. That was my sixth grade teacher speaking right there. She'd always say, this is a rhetorical question, do not answer it. <laughs> sixth graders, you know, they'd be like, oh, I know. When you've reached those moments in life, did they not come with fear and doubt and questions and anxiety? I would suggest to you that divine invitations are often threshold moments. And when we, re when we reach those places, that there will always be questions and doubts and fears and wonderings. Am I hearing this right? Do I have what it takes? I mean, think about thresholds just outside of a spiritual lens for a moment. Like, if you're married, that day when you stood on that threshold, I remember standing there thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I didn't tell anybody that, right? <laughs> you're an idiot if you say that out loud. Like, don't do that. Everyone will freak out. But you gotta, you gotta wrestle that one to the ground. Like, do I have it in me to, to like live into this, these vows that I'm making to this person? Will I always be in love? Will I always, like, those are honest questions in those moments. I remember the moment when we found out we were pregnant with our first, and it was like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, kind of, right? Can I be a dad? Like, a, the, the title of father, that's a big deal. Like, do I have what it takes within me as a man to be a father to a child? Some of you are starting new schools in a couple of days where whatever, was whatever happened before will be left behind you and something new will begin. Parents, some of you are going to drop off your first at school in a couple of days. That's a threshold before and after. Some of you are dropping off your last and now they're all in school and you're wondering, what am I going to do with myself? Some of you are ready to party. <laughs> <laughs> our, 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 our 
first day of school celebration is mimosas. Whenever Laura and I drop the kids off at school, for as long as we put them in school, we go and get mimosas. And we're like, hallelujah, we love tax dollars. <laughs> but those are threshold moments. And they come with fear and anxiety and questions, starting a new job, leaving a job for the unknown. Let's just say that in this story, it's a threshold moment. And Moses is invited to leave one thing so that he can step into something else. And in order to do that, fear and doubt and questions and anxieties have to be voiced and have to be walked through. And I would just encourage you this morning, as part of a, the spiritual life, you can't hide from those questions. You can't run from them. The recovery movement says wherever you are, that's where you will be. You go with you. <laughs> so wherever you end up, all of you is there. The fear, the doubts, the questions, the anxieties, the wonderings, they come too. You can't hide from them, so don't. Say it out loud. Write it in a journal. Offer it to God, whatever that looks like, to a trusted friend. Don't pretend it's not real. It is. And it doesn't mean you're any less of a faithful person. I would also say that with divine invitations, help comes from unexpected places and, un and in un unexpected ways. Where does the help come from in this text? This is one of the reasons why I love the Bible. Like, nobody sees this one coming. It's Zipporah, the pagan woman who, like, comes to the rescue. She's, if in fact it's Moses and there's a divine death grip on him for, like, not leaving fully right? And circumcision being a symbol of what it means to be a Hebrew, and his sons are not circumcised, and so God's like, you got to cross over all the way. It's Zipporah, the pagan woman who saves the day. By the time Moses gets to his, uh, Egypt and the exodus happens, four different women will have saved his life. Before this, one of the greatest stories in all of history that's ever been told, the exodus, before it ever hits go, Four ladies have to step up and, and be faithful to the cause. Come on, ladies. Like that, I just love it, right? I love it. Zipporah, like the most bizarre, unexpected woman or unexpected person who's outside of in. She's a pagan. She's not an Israelite. It's like Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, the first woman in the text to hear from God. It's an Egyptian woman. Come on. If you think that God isn't for the downcast and the outcast and the, and the people who are on the edges and marginalized, you're not reading the text. It's Zipporah, the pagan woman. She's the only one in the story who has agency. That, to me, is just fascinating. Unexpected places and unexpected ways. Jenna, many of you know, Associate Pastor Jenna, when we were thinking about budgets for this year, she had this kind of like pipe dream, crackpot crazy idea that like, what if, and, and this number just kept coming to her, $10,000 for the Jonathan house. If you're new around here, the Jonathan house is a dream. It's, it's coming to be, it's like being born. But uh, the Jonathan house is a dream, uh, a housing uh, situation to, to, to house asylum seekers who have fled their countries for fear of their life. There are hundreds of thousands of them in Minnesota. So the Jonathan House is this dream that, that we're kind of dreaming with and about with this organization we're a part of called International Association for Refugees. So Jenna's like, 10 grand. That seems so crazy. So the idea was, well, let's just write it in the budget. Let's just get it in there. Like, in the event of a giant windfall at Awaken and money falls from the sky, what if we could put $10,000 towards the Jonathan House? 
A couple of weeks later, she gets an email from some family who's a part of this church. And they say, we have been saving our resources so that we could add on to our house, and as I understand the story, so that we could create a place for people to come. And we just keep hearing this sense, this invitation from the Lord, which we are not sure about, and we have a lot of questions about, because divine invitations often come with questions and doubts and anxieties, but either way, we feel like the Lord is asking us to give it to something that's actually happening now, and like to make it happen before we do it for ourselves. And so like if we were to give a, a gift um, to Awaken, could we, like, could we put it in service of the Jonathan house? Any guesses as to how much? $10,000, you guys! Unbelievable! Unbelievable! Like, if I, I could take the rest of today and tell you story after story after story after story of how God has been faithful amidst the invitations that we have sensed and felt in this community where we, we questioned and we wondered, we're like, I don't know about this, and we stepped across and we moved towards it, and God, from unexpected places and unexpected people, provision shows. Where does my help come from? Comes from the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 121. I want to suggest, and, and this is from my experience, and I would just I testify to this from my own experience. And I think we could line up people that when God is in the mix and there are invitations from the Lord that we sense are true and real, that often help comes from unexpected places and from unexpected people. So if you find yourself in one of those moments, I would just say, pay attention. Keep your eyes open. Watch. And see where the help comes from. Last, I'll say this. What if? What if this is a hinge story and Moses is being asked to leave something and to receive something, to live into something, to die to something and to have something birthed in him? I would say that the life of faith and a journey with God will require us to leave something behind. Friends, this is just how it works. You talk to spiritual people who are outside of the Christian tradition and they'll affirm this truth that when new things are being born in us, other things have to die. It's just the way it works. It works in our bodies this way. It works in the solar system this way. It works with food this way. It works with babies and new birth. Doctors will testify when a baby is born in a family, more often than not, somebody else dies, a matriarch, a patriarch, and it's this passing. It's this something new is being birthed and something else is being left behind. And I don't know why that is, but maybe it just, maybe it has to do with resurrection. Maybe that's just the way the universe works. Maybe that's just the way God works, where in us, there may have been something that has served you well for a number of years, but whatever threshold you're on, it will require you to put it down, to leave it behind, to, to let go of it, and to receive maybe what you don't know yet. This is faith. This is the spiritual journey. And over and over and over and over again, I found myself in this moment where as I am invited to go forward, I'm also invited to leave something behind. And we've seen this happen so many times. Uh, I'll, I'll close with this story. A couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, I get a text from Laura after two hours here. She's like, hey, we're meeting at the park uh, for a picnic. Join us. I'm like, great, wonderful, I'll be there. Thinking to myself, like a few families that uh, we do life with will be there and their kids will be there and it'll be great. I show up and there's like 50 plus people running around the park and I'm like, what is happening here? I am the pastor of this church. I do not know what this event is about. And I didn't. I had no idea. Trevor, our student ministry director, he gathered, he gathered all the students and all the parents and all the families, and they are just having a lovely old time in the park, unbeknownst to me, the fearless leader of the church. 
right? And this is how it works around here, which I love, actually. So they're just, they're killing it. Trevor is killing it. He's, he's gathered all these people, and he's doing it. Like, he's really doing it. Harry, we're really doing it. And so that's happening, and I, I, I pull up, and I grab a chair, and I'm watching. There's kickball happening, and there's water balloons flying around, and there's koob happening, which I was just so excited about. And, and then, you know, it kind of dies down for a minute, and then another water fight is about to, about to break out again. There are kids who are securing water balloons, and there's whispering going on, and they're, they're trying to, of course, get Trevor or somebody. I, I, was, I made sure that it wasn't going to be me, and I'm like, no, nah, not going to that. So I'm sitting in this chair, and sure enough, the water fight breaks out, and I have this impulse to, like, just go for it, like, right in the middle of it, you know? Uh, like, get the kids, beat them down with water balloons, and, like, just be right in the middle of this massive chaos that's happening. And in a second, I, I just hear this voice of, like, it's not your voice anymore. And out of the corner of my eye runs Trevor. Just beelines right into the middle of it, and he is the center of attention, and the kids are just having a blast, and he's their leader. And I just had this moment of, like, Micah, Your voice, your leadership, your pastoring going forward will look different than what it did before. And whatever, this gift that served you and served the church and served the ministry I've asked you to participate in, you got to let it go. It's not you that, doing that anymore. It's got to look different. And I got to be honest. I, I wrestled with that for a, a few seconds and I thought, no, I still got it in me. I still got it. And the Lord's just like, let it go, Micah. Let it go. It's got to be something else. It's not your place anymore. So maybe this story is about flint knives and foreskins. Or maybe, maybe this is a moment in Moses' life or he's being asked to leave something so that he can step into something else. And there's a million questions and a hundred anxieties and all kinds of doubt. Maybe this is a testimony to unexpected help coming from unexpected places. Zipporah, of all places. And an invitation to leave something behind so that something else can be born. I don't know where you came this morning or where you came from and what you're holding. But I began today, and thinking about today, just with a radical trust that the Spirit of God was among us and with us, and that there's something in this for us today. And so maybe you have questions. Maybe you're on a threshold, and you don't know what lies ahead of you, but you know that you can't go back. Or maybe it's a, you're in the midst of deciding, like, what do I do? And so maybe this story is a window, a way to see... Uh, what the next steps might be. So let me offer a word of prayer and give you some opportunity to respond and to think. Um, and then we'll sing a song as we close. God, this morning, as we gather, we do so um, hoping that you have something for us as a community, uh, as individuals. And so I pray that whatever thresholds and crossroads that we are at together and as people, that whatever anxieties and fears and doubts and questions rise up in the midst of that, that we'd be honest with them. I pray that 
we would have eyes to see the unexpected ways in which you might meet us in the midst of this journey. And that as we move forward, God, whatever might need to be laid down, whatever might need to be left behind, whatever we might need to have a funeral for, so that something else can be birthed in us, that that would take place, that you would make it clear. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Would you stand for a benediction as we close? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Enjoy the weekend. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.